Okay. I hope you're taking lots of notes. I was um, talking to Cheryl, and I do make a point of when I'm speaking at a conference to try and not give you salad scripturally, but meat and potatoes. Is that good? Lots of. So if I talk a bit fast, hopefully you're getting the notes. The idea is you write quickly and you go home and reflect. Is that cool? And the other thing I wanted to say is I really appreciate already the women I've met who um, relating to me about my daughter, either they have a, a daughter or we were saying everyone's got a story in their life. Everyone, and I'm sure you can just take whatever my personal experience is and put it across to yours. So I just want to say I really get that, that um, everyone in this room has a story and they're all valid and they're all significant and they're all special. Is that cool? All right, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this next session. Yeah, Lord. Lord, before we pray for this conference, I had the sense of a word of isolation over some women here, physically and emotionally and spiritually. And um, Lord, I'm going to—I feel like you're going to start speaking into that, but there's something more. I just feel like the Lord, some of you, He's just unlocking your heart a little bit, and He's going to really gently call you right now. I pray that you are brave. I pray that you don't shut down any ideas that, is this real? That you don't shut down by saying, oh, this is for another woman, not me. If you're thinking that, this is for you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would just give the most beautiful present to a woman in this next session. I thank you for your generosity and your kindness. Amen. Who likes stories? I love stories. Trashy romances, anyone? <laughs> but we tell everyone we're reading War and Peace, right? Okay. I love good stories. I love stories like um, Narnia. Narnia? Yes. Love it. Anyone read, um, uh, what's the redeeming one by Francine Rivers? Oh, how good is that? All right. I'm going to tell you a story. So you mightn't get as many notes, but feel free to imagine. Close your eyes and imagine. You can even have a sleep and I'll think you're being spiritual. <laughs> once upon a time, once upon a time, there was a woman who looked in the mirror but could not see herself. The mirror showed her hair and her eyes and her nose and her mouth, but it didn't reflect her. Something had been lost. Something had been hidden. Her soul was missing in action. And sometimes she caught a glimpse of herself in her laughter, in her favourite song, when she did the gardening. But then it would disappear, leaving behind an echo of space. And long ago, she abandoned happily ever after for happy enough. You know, if you keep busy enough, you don't miss your true self. And her days were a cycle of paying bills, answering phone calls making meals, washing clothes, getting to work. And sometimes the cycle became a storm, an appointment with the specialist, a slammed door, a wayward child. And six o'clock in the evening, she just wanted to close her eyes and cover her ears 
as she listened to the news about another soldier killed in another war in someone's country, another earthquake destroying somebody else's family, another unfair act of violence. She puts dinner in the oven and goes out to the veranda and she stares at the majesty of the skies, the splendour of the sunset, these remnants of Eden that weren't destroyed in the crossfire. And she cannot reconcile why the glories of the heavens do not match the poverty in her soul. This sky, this sunset, these stars, this beauty calls her to hope. And for a moment, she allows herself to believe. Believe she was born for significance. Believe she was born to belong. Believe she was born for beauty. And like Cinderella covered in the ashes of disappointment and the cinders of loneliness, she can get just a little glimpse of the castle in the distance. She dares to believe. Believe in stories of castles and glass slippers and ball gowns. Believe that perhaps these stories were not lost with her innocence and dreams. Believe that one day her prince will come. Believe that there is a rhyme and a reason to the story of humanity. She dares to believe in a once upon a time. See, once upon a time, God created he sculpted this beautiful and perfect green and blue planet. And he painted the earth with rainforests and oceans and deserts and mountains. He composed the song of the nightingale, the roar of waves, the roar of a lion. And he framed all this with the heavens, with stars and galaxies and moon. And then he created his masterpiece fearfully and wonderfully made in his very own image, man and woman. And he created them for pleasure. Revelation 4.11, for you created everything and it was for your pleasure they exist. He created woman to be loved, to be enjoyed. His delight, his pleasure See, so often we begin the once upon a time story with original sin and we forget it began with original glory. And like all great stories, there's a great conflict. Narnia has the White Witch, the Lord of Rings has Lord Sauron, the Land of Oz has got the Wicked Witch of the West. And in the same way, evil enters our story. Like the queen of sleeping beauty, the devil desires to be the fairest of them all. Ezekiel 28 verse 17 tells, that, tells us that Satan loved beauty more than the, he loved the one who created beauty. He loved power more than he loved the one who was the source of all power. And his thoughts were corrupted and he wanted that beauty and power all to himself. And so evil, like the wicked queen, set out to disguise himself and tempt the princess with a poisonous apple. An apple ripened with self-power, tasting of self-glory, dripping 
with diseased desires. And so the woman bites into the succulents of the apple and she's poisoned by her desire to be her own God. And the poison spreads through the body, through the mind and through the soul. And the poison spreads like a virus through Eden. And sin enters our world like biochemical warfare. And its poison spreads right through the planet, infecting nature and humanity. John Eldridge, who's read Captivating, points out that so often we see the bite of the apple as a crime of theft, when in fact it was a betrayal of love. We just didn't break the rules. We broke God's heart. We've cast aside our love, our one true love for lust of pride and independence, and we decide we will control our mini-universes. We're going to control our time, our plans, our money, our possessions, our computer, our food, our ambitions, our priorities, all of it. We'll control it. And then we wake up from a night of whoring with our lovers with a hangover of debt, broken relationship, addictions, unresolved emptiness, and we discover that our soul has been put in shackles and we're disconnected from God spiritually abandoned like prisoners of war in a battle-scarred planet. We're like spiritual slum dwellers. We create, create these little shacks as home. And we tell ourselves that it's normal to live with the dirt and grime. If you've ever been to a third world country, you know what I mean. You look and you think, how do they live with this rubbish around them? It's their normal. And so it becomes with us. Our normal is to live with dirt and grime on our heart. And we create a life out of less. We create moments of pleasure, meaning out of the leftovers. And we tell ourselves that's all there is. Memories of original glory, of beauty and pure love, well, they're just the stuff of childish fairy tales. That's the stuff of legends. And so some of us will try to save ourselves we'll attempt to rescue ourselves through morality. And we devise this, this point-keeping scoreboard. You know, I'm not as bad as Hitler, but I'm not as good as Mother Teresa. I'm somewhere in between and that's pretty good, right? Others try to save themselves through sp spirituality, Oprah style, through self-actualization, finding the God within. And to do that, God has to be tamed to a little domestic pet so that we can conquer the uncomfortable supremacy of God. This spirituality tames the unpredictability and the wildness of the story. And God becomes like Toto. He's our little fluffy companion trotting along beside us on the yellow brick road as we try to get home. And when we try to save ourselves, it either ends in despair or pride. And we discover the Emerald City is just a city of illusions and mirrors. Now the story starts to build to a crescendo. Our magnificent hero enters the story. He comes into enemy territory in disguise as a carpenter. Like Mark Twain's classic, The Prince and the Pauper, our hero exchanges the royal palaces, the streets of gold in heaven, 
for the streets of dirt to live as a commoner on earth. This king of the galaxy is born in a stable smelling of animal poo. The Lord of the universe has skin and bones and he has blisters from swinging a hammer. Our hero is not a cut-out Disney hero. He was unpredictable. He was passionate and he was rebellious. He broke the rules and healed on the Sabbath. He rebuked holy men but spent time with whores. Wild storms could be silenced with the word. Demons shook in his presence and he spat in the eye of a blind man. He talked about gouging out your eye if it causes you to lust. He pours out wine and calls it blood. He says, you need to eat me for I'm the bread of life. And he says, I'm going to demolish the temple, the cathedral in three days like a terrorist. Our hero is not a limp-wristed, hipster, latte-drinking Santa. He's untamed, he's wild, and he's unconventional. Our hero is fully human and fully God. And he has the power to call down chariots of fire. And yet he chose to lay down like a little fluffy lamb to the slaughter. Why? To rescue you, his beloved. And so his hands were shackled above his head as straps of leather and metal hooks were whipped into his back and ripped off strips of flesh. A crown of thorns was shoved onto his head and the metal spikes ripped into his skin and he bled. And then nails ripped into the most sensitive nerve endings in his wrist and his feet as he was nailed to a wooden cross. And that cross is dropped into a hole, shaking tremors through a body that's already in shock and battered. He is humiliated in public. He was naked. It's not like the little paintings where they give him a lap lap. He was naked. He was bleeding and he was abused and ridiculed. Do you know the crosses, unlike the pictures, weren't up high, they were down low. And men could come up and urinate on the person naked on the cross. They could get in their face and abuse them. They were humiliated. And he's suffering shock and dehydration and eventually asphyxiation. The cross is a scene of blood and thirst and revolution. And just when we think it's all over... The cross is the climax of the story. The cross is the scene of the greatest battle. It's a scene of clashing swords and dark skies and shaking earth. And just when our hero seems defeated and dead, he bursts from the clutches of the grave. Glorious, victorious. Revelation 19. Verses 11 to 16 describes our hero, this prince in his glory. It says, then I saw heaven open and a white horse was there. It's always white because we all know that's the best, right? A white horse was standing there and its rider was named Faithful and True. Isn't that the best name ever? The man in your life is faithful and true. The God in your life is faithful and true. 
And his eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he wore a robe dripped in blood, and the armies of heaven were dressed in the finest pure linen, followed him on white horses. And on his robe, on his thigh, is tattooed, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And this King of Kings, he's planned a great feast to celebrate his victory. He has planned a royal ball and you are all invited. For he's looking for a bride. He has sent out the invitations across the kingdom from the greatest to the least. Luke 14 tells us he invites the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame and he even invited the girl whose soul is covered in cinders of ashes of sin and shame to come to the ball. So put on your dancing shoes. Come and dance because of what he has done for you on the cross. Dance because you are free. Dance because you are free from death. On the cross, he exchanged his place for yours. On the cross, he became the impoverished and he became the materialistic. He became the addict and he became the pusher. He became the thief and he became the beggar. He became the gossip and he became the disreputable. He became the vain and he became the self-loathing. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin. He who knew no sin. So that we, that you might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our place and received the curse of death. Dance because you're free from shame. He washed away the cinders and ashes. He washed away the stain of shame. See, sometimes we carry the burden of shame not because of something we've done, but because of something done to us. And in a room this size, we know at least one in four know what I'm talking about. On the cross, he became the abused. When we cry out, Jesus, where were you when this was happening to me? This is where he was, hanging on a cross. Becoming abused. Becoming humiliated. Defiled. He became mutilated, abandoned. He became innocence defiled. Isn't that powerful? That's where he was, darling. Isaiah 53, 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He was the one from which men hid their faces. Too ugly. Too disgusting, too dirty. He knows that surely he has borne our grief and sorrows. We often hear that Christ died for our sins, the sins we committed, but we need to remember he also died for the sins committed against us. When we have been defiled by others, when we feel dirty and used, he makes us clean, he makes us pure. That was the great victory at the cross also. Put on your dancing shoes. Mine are red and sparkly. How about yours? 
Put on your dancing shoes because we're free from fear. Because of the cross, I'm free from the fear of death because death was conquered by the resurrection. I'm free from the fear of failure because I don't have to be good enough for God. He has become my perfection. I'm free from the fear of being alone because the cross was the bridge that connected God and I forever. He will never leave or forsake me. So when fear taunts you, when it tries to make you sit down when you should dance, you get on your daddy's toes. Was anyone blessed enough to have a daddy who would put him on his big feet and dance you around? You think of that memory. If you didn't have that memory, take ours. Get on God's feet and let him dance you around like his precious little girl. Let him dance you through the fear. When fear taunts you, you get on daddy's toes. Psalm 68, 19. Every day he carries us in his arms. Isn't that a verse you could munch and crunch and live off like a feast? Every day he carries you in his arms. Allow your dance partner to lead you. Put on your dancing shoes because you are free from the approval of others. See, when we see life through the cross, Jesus becomes our centre. Like Cinderella enchanted with her Prince of Peace, her eyes are on him alone. What does he think? What's he thinking now? What are you thinking, honey? Men love that question, don't they? No, they don't. Don't ask them that. What's Jesus thinking? What's he passionate about? These things consume our attention. I dance for him and no other. I dance not for the applause of others. Their clapping is just a hollow sound. I don't dance to their rhythm. Let's dance to the rhythm of heaven. Put on your dancing shoes and dance. Dance because you are free from death, free from shame, free from fear, free from the approval of others. See, from the cross, the Prince of Peace slayed the dragon. He cut through the big tangle of thorns surrounding the castle of your heart and he got in there and he rescued his princess. She was in a spiritual slumber, poisoned, but he awakens her soul with a kiss of heaven. And he says, it is finished. Your death, your punishment, your shame, that all died. It's finished. It died on the cross. Your new life, your new purity, your new righteousness, it's in me. Your resurrection is in me. You are a new creation. The girl covered in grime and cinders is now the beloved princess. Turn to Ezekiel 16 if you've got it. Love it. Ezekiel 16 describes the process of transforming us from cinders to royalty. Verse 5. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field, left to die. That verse is powerful. There are little baby girls all over Asia and the Middle East, when they're born and they see it's a girl, they're dumped. They're unwanted because they're a girl. That's what Satan's doing. And now because science is good, they can do it when they're still in the womb. It's a girl. This verse just isn't for us in our comfortable little white world, okay? This is a powerful verse across the world. Perhaps you, on the day you were born, were unwanted, an unplanned pregnancy, not wanted. God's talking right at you. But I came by 
God came by and he saw you helplessly kicking about in your own blood. And as you lay there, I said, live. That one word, God says, live. He doesn't say survive, please don't die. He says, live. Verse 9, then I bathed you and washed off your blood and I rubbed fragrant oils to your skin. Verse 10, I gave you expensive clothing of fine linen and silk, beautifully embroidered. And then he gives shoes, sandals of fine goatskin leather, which I think is like a Manalo Blanik, but anyway. Verse 11, I gave you jewellery, bracelets, beautiful necklace, sorry mums, a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears and a lovely crown for your head. And you became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen and so you were. If you're telling yourself this isn't me, you're wrong. Listen to me. This is for you. First, like the unwanted baby girl, we are bathed and cleansed and made pure. Ezekiel 36, verses 25, 26, it says, I will pure pour water over you and scrub you clean. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you and I will remove your stone heart from your body. I love that stone heart. Sometimes we don't have a broken heart. Sometimes we just can't feel anything anymore. We're numb. I'm going to remove that from your body and replace it with a heart that is God-willed, not self-willed. I used to imagine that when God wanted to rub me clean, it would be like a scary nurse like Colleen. Not really. She dresses up at Santa at Christmas time. She's not a scary nurse. But you know the scary nurse. They also, these scary women sell bras at David Jones. You know the ones I'm talking about. <laughs> Sorry, do you work at David Jones? Oh, good. <laughs> okay. You just know who I'm talking about, don't you? Yes. I thought this scary woman would be like God, you naughty, naughty little sitting girl. And then God says, no, 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 no. Imagine the palaces of Scheherazade. And there's marble archways. And there's, this is in my mind, you go where you want. There's a great big, huge, round, warm pool of water. And on it's floating jasmine and rose petals. And the, the, the mist is coming off and it smells of beautiful oils. And I just slip into that water. And then God just starts washing it off. And of course, there's a waterfall at the end that I can just slip under. And God's just washing it off and cleansing it off, going right through every molecule of my spirit, cleansing it, making it new. That's what I believe it looks like. And then we're rubbed with perfumed oils. In the Bible, we read about another woman who was an orphan and a refugee, and she's transformed from commoner to royalty. Young Hadassah is taken to the royal courts to be presented to the king. But first, she doesn't just have a day spa. No, no, my friend. She doesn't go to Bali for a week at the health farm. Mm -mm. She has a year of treatments. Six months of cleansing. Apparently, that constant diet of lentils and hummus, not so attractive. <laughs> and then six months of being beautified in the oil of myrrh. And perfumes and oils. See, evolving from orphan to princess is a process. The cleansing of your sin is immediate. Your adoption forever. And you are given the title, beloved daughter of the king of kings. But now over time, over the months, the perfume of Jesus has to saturate into your soul and be massaged in. It's absorbed into our attitudes and our thoughts and our behaviours. 
until we start to reflect the reality of our royal title. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. The presence of his spirit in our soul is a perfume and it smells of love and life and beauty. It just gets better because after we're cleansed, we're given new clothes. Don't you get that God gets women? Isaiah 52.1. It tells the story of a spiritual sleeping beauty who's awoken from the curse of death. It says, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. Isn't this a classic theme in stories? What we love about stories, this transformation of pulpit to princess. When Cinderella gets ready for the ball, ready to meet her prince, her rags and her ashes are exchanged for that fabulous dress as she twirls. It goes pink and blue, pink and blue. I love that. When Julia Roberts is taken shopping with Richard Gere and Pretty Woman, they spend an obscene amount of money, don't they? The prostitute becomes the lady. And those who are old school, Eliza Doolittle. Do you remember the black and white outfit? The street cockney becomes dignified nobility. I don't believe those stories come out of nowhere. Those stories come out of what God has created us in our humanity. That's our spirits crying out for that experience. And it keeps happening in stories and over and over and resonating and resonating because that's what God is doing. And so the Bible describes our new clothes. We get new clothes to match our new identity. Isaiah 61.10 says we are dressed in the clothing of salvation, in the robes of righteousness. Like a bride in her jewels. Psalm 45, just keep reading that over and over. Psalm 45, verses 13 and 14 tells us we are the bride, the princess who looks glorious in her golden gown and in her beautiful robes she is led to the king. It just gets better. Then we're adorned by jewels. First he places a crown on in her head. You know what I love about the crown? It's worn over the mind. Ephesians 4.23 says there must be a spiritual renewal of your thoughts and attitude for you are a new person created in God's likeness, righteous, holy and true. That's my mindset, righteous, holy and true. I am righteous, holy and true. The crown reminds me to think in a new way. I am not rejected, I am chosen. I'm not ugly, I'm beautiful. I'm not useless, I'm significant. I'm not a pauper, I'm a princess. My daddy's the biggest daddy in the universe. With this crown, we receive a position in his family, a daughter of the Most High King, in a kingdom with authority and significance. This crown reminds us we have dignity. And then he places a necklace around our neck. And that's significant because the necklace falls over our heart, over our chest. It's in our hearts where we keep the words, Isaiah 43, 4. If you don't know this verse, learn it. For you are precious and honoured and I love you. 
Could God be any more straight up with you? Isaiah 43, 4. You are precious. You are honoured and I love you. True that. See, God's declared that nothing, absolutely nothing, not sword, not nakedness, not death, not distress, not angels, not demon, nothing in the universe can separate us from the limitless, immeasurable love of God. This necklace reminds us we are loved. And then he gives our soul bracelets. I love, we wear bracelets where he wore nails. We are so precious to him that he gave up everything he had to secure a future with us, our ever after with him. I think of the pearl merchant in Matthew 13 who gave up all he had to purchase the most beautiful, fine, excellent pearl. Jesus gave up everything he had, even his very life, so he could redeem you, he could purchase you his most fine and excellent pearl. The bracelet reminds us of our value. And finally, the best. You know what I'm going to say, Rosemary? You got it, girl. Shoes. Luke 15, we read about the child who's rejected love and run away from her destiny. We read about the prodigal son, or in our case, the prodigal daughter. The daughter leaves home with a heart full of pride and a soul full of self, and she squanders her inheritance on foolish adventures. She's like Alice falling down the rabbit hole until she lands in the pigsty of life, spiritually hungry and filthy. And in desperation, and only in desperation, she goes back to her father, the king. And in Luke 15, verse 20, it says, filled with love and compassion. The father ran to the daughter. Do you love that? He ran. He didn't wait for her to get there and made her crawl on her hands and knees to come to him and say sorry. He ran out to her full of love and compassion and he embraced her. You know, one of those where he flies into you and nearly knocks you over. And then he kissed her. And in verse 22, he says, quick, bring me the best dress in the house. Get a ring for her finger, make it big and sparkly, and sandals for her feet. Expecting condemnation, she finds celebration. Expecting punishment, she gets pearls. Expecting to be thrown the scraps, he throws a party. Expecting to get a dressing down, he dresses her up in gold and silk and new silk slippers. See, in biblical times, he had to get her shoes because in biblical times, if you were in poverty, you didn't have shoes. In biblical times, if you were grieving and surrounded by death, you didn't wear shoes. And the father is saying this is the end of her spiritual death and grieving. This is the end of her spiritual poverty. Put shoes on her feet. He is giving her a position as royalty in his kingdom. Because the royals wore shoes. Priests wore shoes. He's giving her a place of sacredness in the kingdom. Like Cinderella, your prince is looking for you. You can run away from your destiny, thinking your failures and your flaws are the strike of midnight. But he comes looking for you. And the shoe fits You are the princess. 
The shoes remind us we're chosen. Once upon a time, a woman looked in the mirror and the face she saw reflected the face of her father. In her eyes, she could see his eyes, eyes that saw with love and compassion. In her mouth, she could see his mouth, from which streamed out gracious words. In her ears, she could see his ears, ears that hear the truth and the cries of the poor, ears that hear the hungry kids at school. She saw a nose that could breathe in deeply the fragrance of Christ, a perfume that drenched the skin of her soul. She saw a neck graced with fine and pure pearls, pearls given to her from her father for her spiritual birthday, the day she became a woman of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And all of us, as with unveiled faces, continue to behold in a mirror the glory of God. We are being constantly transfigured into his very own image in ever increasing, increasing more and more splendor. In the mirror, she saw her true self. She saw her father's daughter, his princess, his fine pearl and his treasure to be loved by him eternally, ever after. Amen. Lord, I love your word. I, Lord, I love that there's so much in there for women if we want to see it. I love that we weren't a second thought. I love that our beauty and our femininity resonates as part of your image, part of who you are, part of what you've put in us. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us. Created in the image of you. Wonderfully and fearfully made. Wrought and embroidered in our mother's womb. You've known us every day of our life and you've written all the days of our life in the book of life. That you hem us in from behind and from, from behind and all around us. that we are yours, completely loved, completely loved, completely yours. Amen.